Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. This week we have a guest speaker, one of our very own elders, Mike Van Fleet. Mike will continue in the Great Mystery series with the message titled, Our Everyday Lives, teaching out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Good morning. So glad you guys are here. I'm Mike Van Fleet. I'm an elder here at the church. I know a lot of you guys. I'm, um, you know, I'm taking a break from my normal job of catching snakes and killing bees and controlling the temperature in the auditorium, which is normally what I do on Sunday mornings uh, to help Ben get a, a break so he can go on vacation. Uh, so thankful that Ben gets to go and uh, take some time off. Normally he orients all of his uh, vacation time around May when kind of things happen with conferences and stuff. But of course... May was when things sort of went sideways on us, so we kind of delayed that, so so glad that he's going to be off. He'll actually be off next week as well. Matt Miller will be up here teaching, so don't want to miss that. Um, it's, always, I don't know, it's always intriguing to get to hear somebody different get up and, get up and speak, so I'm going to do my best today. Uh, I even practiced yesterday just in case nobody showed up, because it is the July 4th weekend, and we're in the middle of a global health pandemic that just won't go away, so... You don't take anything for granted. So thank you so much for having the courage um, and drive to be in here today. Uh, We know not all of us have that opportunity. We have um, really great access to technology that even 10 years ago was just unrealistic for a church like our size to have. And so thanks to generous giving that can fund the purchase of the equipment that we have back here that you guys can't really see, but things are changing significantly in the background here to allow us to do all the things that make these messages available to you guys online. So welcome to you guys as well. Um, So thankful that everybody gets to be here together. Um, Thanks to the hard work of our, you know, we have four people back there kicking butt, making things happen, doing video, trying to switch the cameras on me as I go do different things, as as well as find a way to get that packaged up for everybody to see. Um, Which is awesome because then, really, even though there's a few of us, you know, compared to what we normally have in the room, we're all together as a family. Um, you know, those of us like me are getting used to the new life in the office complex, which includes me in my bedroom talking through a telephone and just hoping the people on the other side are listening to me. You just can't even tell. I, and if, you, you know, conducting a meeting in person, you know, sometimes you can't even tell. I mean, that guy's on his laptop. That guy's looking at his phone. At least I know they're here and they're like, you know, listening on the phone. It's harder. Um, so we're getting used to that. But it's a blessing and a curse because these things can happen across households um, here in Vail and Rita Ranch and, and beyond so that people can participate with us together um, in what's really just one expression of our church. And it's, it's great that we get to be here together. Um, today we're going to continue our series in Colossians. Paul is going to be moving from his teaching on individual relationships and how those individual relationships need to be conducted in a way that represents Christ, that, that represents the believer to scaling that into households and families, um, and even broader. And he's going to move into how do those relationships need to be conducted as part of the family and, and what we call the household, and we're going to get into that. This passage right here that's in Colossians 3 has two very similar passages, one in Ephesians 5, also written by Paul, and then one in 1 Peter 3 and a little bit of 4 um, that's written by Peter, And they're called the household texts because they all have 
similar content, similar teaching around a similar thing, and it's the household. Um, and so if you're going to go study, like, what are the roles of the family? What are the roles that we, we need to be looking at? You're going to find yourself in one of those three, and most usefully, all of them. Um, you know, it's, it can be kind of a deterrent to think, well, I, I know that these were written 2,000 years ago, which is a long time. I mean, if you really think about what life was like 100 years ago, it blows your mind. 2,000 years ago, it's like you got to watch the History Channel to see what people's houses kind of look like from their foundations. It's, it's way back. So you might go, well, if something as practical as how do I live in my family, how does something that occurred 2,000 years ago in a different society and culture in any way meaningful to me? Like, I mean, this might as well be meaningless. It's completely different. And, and in reality, it's not the case. But part of my job this morning is to take scriptures, just, not just from Colossians, but from around the New Testament, and pull those together to give us a picture of what was Paul and Peter both teaching in these household texts about the family relationships then? What was the spirit and principles behind that? And then how do we, inst- how do we instantiate, how do we use that here 2,000 years later to inform us on how we should manage our own households? How is it meaningful to us? And it's it's going to flesh out in this lesson. But I also want to kind of bring up the fact that there are some terms in this passage that can get your hackles up a little bit. Um, submission, slavery, masters. I mean, these are things, I mean, our, you know, 2020 is not known for, like, understanding out there. People are like, <laughs> that's not, it's not a lot of like, oh, let me think about what you mean before I react. There's not a lot going out you know, happening like that. So I want to be clear here that even though you know, over the last two centuries there's been a lot of missteps and shameful acts perpetrated by us on planet Earth, um, they have created like wounds and scars that affect some of us and, and people groups, um, that those things don't necessarily need to discount what the teaching is here. Um, and if, if you follow how I'm going to teach this and talk about what the meaning of each of these words is and what it meant then, it's going to become really clear that um, these things are particularly meaningful. In fact, they inform us on how to live our lives as households in a way that prevents some of this craziness that's occurring um, where there's just shame and disrespect occurring. Um, it, this teaches us how to avoid that in raising families and, and kids in those families that are solid, founded individuals. Um, but we're going to use other pieces of the scripture to make sure that we're in- interpreting what Paul's saying here in Colossians 3 correctly. The Colossians letter as a whole, you know, we titled this message The Great Mystery, not because uh, we wanted to draw a cool background with a funny-looking eye, or we wanted to like interpret that as like some pieces of wisdom is like, um, meant to be withheld or kept from you. The, the mystery is really meant to say there's some truths about Christ that are just going to come at us from an angle that we didn't expect. And that's the mystery, right? We have to dig into, wait a second, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. What is, what's, what's the truth behind that? Last week, that mystery that came out was that, you know, and this is in the context of Ben talking about conduct within individual relationships and how those things demonstrate the heart of God to others around you um, and honor him. It, the mystery is that even though Christ is, he is king, he is Lord of all, 
He is above all creation, the firstborn among everything. He wants us to get to know him, not by his greatness, but by how he wants us to relate with each other. You know, he, he'd be the first to say, you really know me. Right? He kind of says this in Matthew 25. I'm going to know that you know me by how you treated what the least of these, right? He didn't say, you're going to know me because you knew how great I was. You're going to know me because of how you treated others. And that's the mystery, because that's not the way it tends to play out in our understanding of you know, the culture around us, where people who have kind of authority and power tend to want you to know about their achievements and use those achievements as reasons why what they're saying has any credibility whatsoever. But then later you may find out, you, know, you kind of slipped up in how you treated others on your way there totally opposite in the kingdom. It's a mystery, and it causes us to need to rethink, and we'll get there um, later. In the Colossians book itself, I'm a big picture guy. You, know, you may or may not be the same way, but if I'm you know, reading in Bible.org and I search for a passage and it gives me like one sentence, my favorite button is to like read whole chapter button because so I can go, oh, I can see the whole thing now, and it like can make sense. Even, even more so, I'm like, i got to read this whole book sometimes just to make sure I'm catching the big picture. So when I kind of digest Colossians, I want to put it into like, what are the main themes? And I'm going to put them up here in a, in a second. If you take all of the pleasantries and the greetings and the goodbyes and the logistics that occur in his letter, and you strip those all out and say, let me just focus on the key points. What are the key themes you want me to, to, to learn, Paul? To me, you're not going to find this in any book. To me, there's six of them. Establishing the supremacy of Christ avoiding false teaching, leaving sinful behavior behind, allowing Christ's love to drive your behaviors, establish households with Christ's heart at the center. That's where we're going to be today. Take Paul's mission on yourselves. Remember that Paul, you know, his mission was spreading the church through the areas that were like north and west of Israel. And so he was going on these missionary journeys and his his approach kind of matched what his goal was. His goal was, I'm going to spread um, the message of Christ as fast and as wide as I can. And my approach is, I'm going to go to a place, establish a leadership team, plant a church, be there for a little bit, move on. Get a leadership team, establish a church, teach them a little bit, move on. And he did this, then enrolled others to do the same in his team. And what you had is this effect of the wave of the gospel sort of spread throughout by virtue of church plants throughout this area that's you know, kind of Turkey mainly over there in Greece. And then behind him, we're like, okay, there's all these churches that I spent a little bit of time with and I teach them, taught them, and I establish elders, and they need some help. So I'm going to write them letters because there's no like MS Teams or Zoom calls or anything I can like reach back and like let them see my face. So the best I can do is write the things that we have in the New Testament to communicate to them. Sometimes they were very specific. So if he had intel on like the Corinthian church, oh, these guys are struggling because there's these weird like kind of idol-worshiping cults going on there. I'm going to write my letter such that I address that specifically, and that's going to dominate kind of the, the theme of my letter because I'm going to address that specific thing. And something like Colossians, he has much less information about, right? So this is a place where, you know, he doesn't have the benefit of I spent a lot of time there or I planted a church. This He didn't spend any time there from potentially what we know. So when we look at what he wrote, these themes you could almost say are, this is what his nominal, like this is what I'm going to say to a new church. These are the common things that I want them to know. 
and, and what I put in here is going to be based on what I think is the most important things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on things I don't think are important. Let me hit the big themes that I have found to be you know, significant. And that helps connect us to what should we be focusing on? You know, what should we be trying to put our, our, our hearts around and our minds around? And it's these same kind of things. The first section that he puts up there, you kind of see this mystery playing out where God doesn't necessarily want us to know him through his greatness. He wants to know, know his heart. So for the first four sentences of that topic, he talks to, yep, Christ is born of all creation, the head of the church, and the one in, uh, in which the fullness of God dwells. Super significant, super important when understanding our God. But when it comes to knowing his heart, the whole rest of the Colossians letter is dominated by those things that help us know our God. And they are, you know, it says, avoiding false teaching, but that is in the context of know who you are. You've been taught in this way. This is who you are as a Christ follower. This is what's meaningful to you. Then it's how do you conduct yourself in relationships with others? How does that demonstrate God's heart to other people? That's where Ben was last week, right? You, you recall the, the, the third one over there is like put off the things of, of the earth, right? Malice and treachery and all these other things that none of us want to be. Be rid of those. And then put on the coat of the new man. Gentleness, kindness, patience, and all these great things. Who are you individually as a person? Where we move into today in, in the, the fifth one there, you know, establishing Christ-following households. What's Paul's teaching summarizes, he's going to set a high bar for the relationships and how they're conducted that we spend the most time with, the relationships that are most central to you. Because that's where you spend the most time with your family. Just natural, right? It's like, have you, you guys are like learning to drive. Have you heard somebody say like, you're most likely to get into an accident one mile from your house. Have you heard this statement? Well, that's mathematically sensible, right? Because that's where you spend most of your time driving. It doesn't mean it's more dangerous by your house. All right, so it's just where you are. Well, same way, I mean, the relationships at your house are the ones, and you spend the most time with them. That's, that's where you're at. That's the people you're with most of the time. And so in that segment, he's going to go, there's a high bar here, and there's a purpose behind this household relationship that's the underpinning for this, this lesson here. So as I walk through um, the passage here, and then the roles, keep that in mind. So I'm going to read here in Colossians 3.18, in just a little bit of 4, 4 one. And then we'll jump into um, pulling the truth out of the text. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, so they will not become disheartened. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every respect, not only when they are watching, like those who are strictly people pleasers, but with a sincere heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people because you know you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there are no exceptions. Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness because you know that you have a master in heaven. Let me talk about this word households first because it's it's not an insignificant nuance that in the New Testament they use the word family and household separately. They have two distinct meanings. And honestly, the, 
the meaning that we have when we say family is a little bit different than even households. If, if you're reading the New Testament and it says family, that word means like family tree, your family bloodline, all the people who you're related to as a large group of people. It's not used very many times, and a lot of times it's like referenced to, um, like in the Old Testament, the priest and his family, which means like the priest and all of his descendants, or Joseph and his family. That means Joseph and his brothers and all the people that came about in Egypt. That's, that's what the meaning of family is. It doesn't have a, a very broad meaning. When they use the term household, which is more closely related to what we say when, when we say family, um, it's, it's talking about, in one sense, the people who live at a particular location. They're the ones who live in that house. At that place, there are people living. That's who we're talking about, the household. And when we say family, you know, in Rita Ranch, if somebody says, what, tell me about your household, your initial thought would be what we think is family, right? These are the people who I'm related to, who I live with, and you might actually say, like, I'm kind of stuck with these people too. Like, that's kind of the nature of what the family is. I'm there, they're in the same house with me, I don't got any choice about it. And that's kind of one way to view it. You know, for us, it's going to be usually mom and dad with some kids, um, or it can be, you know, grandma and grandpa living um, in retirement. It could be, you know, you're out on your own, you're singles with some roommates. Uh, regardless of who's there with you, though, that's, that's your household. Whereas when we say family, we only mean the houses where there's people living there that are, like, related. In this context, household has a different kind of context. It's more complex and of a meaning. It's, it's most similar, and it's, it's helpful that we're in Arizona um, because you know, we understand what a ranch is maybe here a little bit more than other states. But where I was from, it was called a farm. If you say the farm or the ranch, you're more closely talking about what they say is a household here. If, if you're from that kind of a place, you know, the you say the farm, it's like the people and the hands and the folks that are there, they're contributing to that. It's roles and responsibilities. It's what they're about. You know, where I came from, the Van Fleet Farm was like, it wasn't just Randy, Nan, Mike, and Sarah. It was like the maple syrup operation and the winery caretaking and the horses and all those things that went together and what we were doing there. And if one of us wasn't there, if one of us died or moved away, it doesn't that was still the the that was still the farm, the still, still the Van Fleet farm. Uh, here, you know, if I'm with uh, some of the guys hunting down in Wilcox, you know, I can't say, oh, I'm, I'm over hunting on the Todd farm because there's a lot of Todd farms actually down there. There's a lot of Todd ranches. I got to say, oh, I'm at the Obaro or the Warbonnet so I can know if I'm at the Dustin and Aya's place or whatever. And when I talk about their ranch and I get to go down there and have fun, like branding cattle and stuff with Matt and Andrew and, some, and Tyler and some of these guys, you get to see this is their household. This is the mission and the objective of a small organizational unit. That is, that's what that is. It's more than just those people. And that's important to putting into context the, the roles that we're talking about here because it's not just roles in the family and, the, and this teaching is about, I'm gonna pres- I'm, I, Paul, is going to prescribe the relationships that must make up a family. Like there has to be a dad and there has to be a mom and there has to be a... It's not that at all. Those, those actually pre, predated this teaching, right? They had already organized over there in a culture that was primarily, you know, agriculture, but, you know, they were also kind of figuring out metal smelting and mining and all those things at the same time. But where people lived, that was kind of where their, 
livelihood was being generated and there was hands, that, you know, in, that, in their context, that's a, a bondservant, which is translated as slave here. Um, all those things are part of that. And when Paul's giving instruction on how to live within that, he's saying, given you guys have organized this way into these small organizational units, let me put God's heart on top of that and instruct you on how you should be in that family. You know, if, if you guys were to like put yourselves in that position, you'd be like, how is, you know, how is the B ranch going to operate, right? If you think about that versus like, what's the B family going to be like? You get a different picture of it. And you guys can all put your own names in there. What would, what would it be like if I had my own farm or a ranch? And who is going to do what? And how are we going to get by? Well, that's, that's household here. It's a community that's built out of these things. So let's look at these roles here with that in mind. We have wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Like I said, for each of these roles, I'm going to talk about a little bit of a constellation of points that I'm going to pull in from different parts of the New Testament to make sure we're most accurately understanding it. It's hard to get just one piece of it from one verse, especially when initially we can kind of be like put off by like this word submit. In Peter's passage, one of the other household texts, this behavior, this submissive behavior by the wife is cited as being able to change the heart of your husband. You know, if that's the case where that needs to be done, then you have the power to do it. In Ephesians, the wife is said to symbolize the church who Christ came to save. A couple times in Acts, a household is referred to as her household. Lydia is one in specifics. Lydia's household, and there's a story behind that. It wasn't like, you know, fill in the blank with Lydia's husband's name just because that's how you did it. No, it was okay. Any member of the household could kind of be the owner of that family as you're referring to it, right? Uh, wives are included in actions of church leadership. If you think about Aquila and Priscilla, they're this sort of married couple in the new church, and they were um, solid Christ-following folks. When Apollos comes across from Alexandria, like super smart, learned guy who's going to go teach everybody, he was in great shape, except he wasn't aware of current events. Namely, Christ had just come, and this, you know, so the church said, oh my gosh, this guy's great. We need him to be a teacher, but he's missing some stuff. So Aquila and Priscilla go teach him the ways. It wasn't just one. And so you start looking at how wives are referenced in this constellation, and you realize that when they say wives submit to husbands, that can't be associated with anything that's like diminished value, which I think can be the common barrier, right? When we start thinking about submission, it's all about subservience, which is like diminished value in light of somebody else's authority. And that's just, just not the context that you see playing out here whatsoever. Um, and we're going to get to that later as we kind of go, what's the next great mystery? And it's, it's right here where the mystery is in God's kingdom, value and authority aren't, aren't directly connected where they are, tends, where it tends to be in our sight. Right? You, people see your value is directly connected to your authority and the more like value you have, more, it, it's, it's not that way. It's a role in the household, just like any other role. And so you see through the lens here that a wife brings honor to herself and God by living out this role enthusiastically. Husbands, and it's going to play together with this, says, do not be embittered against your wives. In the Peter passage, it says, show honor to them as fellow heirs. 
very informative statement, right? A lot of power there in understanding, okay, we're not, you have this role that, you know, your wife was just told to submit to you, but you're now told that she is a fellow heir of, of the same value, essentially. In Ephesians, it says you're responsible for, for presenting the wife as holy and blameless before the Lord and love her as your own body. Throughout the New Testament, and I'm sure you guys have heard this, the husband's behavior is likened to the act of Christ sacrificing himself for us in the church. And so the role of husband in the New Testament is very connected to sacrificial behavior. Uh, so based on that, it, you can't interpret the role of the husband as being like the authoritarian in the family that comes with increased value. It's not like the husband role is the role and all the others revolve around it. It's the wrong mental picture. Every role has value. Each one needs to be lived with enthusiasm. Um, has nothing to do with value. Uh, it's not a simple job, those of you who like doing the role of husband. Um, kind of like there's some weight on your shoulders that hurts sometimes. It's not easy. Um, if you find somebody, even like maybe your young people in your house, like I can't wait to be dad. And I get to like, tell everybody about what restaurant we're going to go to <laughs> or something. You're like, no, you don't understand the job. You really don't. <laughs> you think I get to choose what restaurant we're going to? <laughs> Just seems like that. Children, though, obey your parents and everything for this is pleasing to the Lord. And, you know, you could say, oh, this is an easier, you know, as an adult, you'd say, I wish I could be a young person again and not have the responsibility, but it's not easy. We don't, we don't really believe that. Being a young person is not simple. Um, but there, there certainly is significant things said about young people in the Bible. I mean, Christ himself says, you know, those who welcome the children in my name welcome me. They are the ones who inherit the kingdom. You know, the kingdom belongs to them. Um, there's this great place in 1 Timothy where he talks about, it's actually not necessarily the family directly, um, but he talks about the role of children in caring for widows. Because the question is, what do you do with all these widows? Because um, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't common for the husbands to like die off really because it was rough. And what do we do with these widows? Should we give them money from the church to support them? And Timothy was like, well, only if there's no children there to fulfill their duty to the household to take care of the widows, which is just awesome because there's the duty and honor. I just love those words, right? And it says there's a duty to this thing that you have been, that you're committed to. We're all committed to. It's not just the children. Wives, husbands, bondservants, everybody. We're, we have a commitment to this family, and it helps us understand what it is um, when we say we have a duty to it. So there's duties that go along with being a young person in the family. Um, and you can't say that this, this role is like all about, oh, i got to obey my parents, I'm their servant, and I don't have a voice. If that, that, that's how maybe how you can kind of feel about it. I don't have a voice. I don't have a voice in the decisions. I don't have significance, and it's hard for me, and I'm frustrated. Um, and to some degree, young people don't get to participate in all the decisions, but you do have the power to participate in some of the most significant ones, which right here is choosing to obey and, and fulfill your duty to the family. 
Um, and, and that has a power and an energy in a family that's hard to see. Um, you, know, you have the ability and the opportunity to build and strengthen your family by how you choose to use this opportunity of, of obedience. Because as a parent, even as, you know, I have young kids, um, but even just when they're like kind of, they're locked in and they're being obedient and I know they're, they're working hard, it gives me energy to be better and it gives Sherry energy to be better and it builds strength in the family. So I think in a way there's this role of, of children that like provides bond strength in the household and that, you don't see that necessarily until you're a parent. Um, so f- that's your role because we all have that kind of role if you see our, our little household as part of a bigger household. When people are here at the church living out their roles with enthusiasm, being obedient even when it's challenging, that invigorates the body as a whole, right? It's like, yes, we're getting something done. It's not, but we're, you know, there, it's that camaraderie thing, right? We're all in this together. And that builds strength. It's vital to the health of your household and vital to the health of the church. Fathers do not provoke so they will, your children will not become disheartened probably the easiest one to understand because we all can kind of picture what this this looks like. Um, you know, if you think about this in the context of Ben's teaching, you know, the individual relationships, it, it kind of clicks in best. Put off these things like anger and abusive language, which tend to be a common source of this disheartenment or disenfranchisement that, that can occur, but instead put on humility, gentleness, and patience Luke has this great um, reference to Elijah where Elijah says the Savior will come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. And in, in these things, you can see the heart of God for, for fathers. And, and in a way, I would lump this together as just parents, is, is the role is to acquaint, uh, train and equip those who are in your care and do so in a, ma- a manner that builds a lineage through future generations you know, it can be the easy button, I think, to take the authoritarian role, but it's not a path to success. But somehow it's just when you get frustrated, that can happen. Um, but a lot's at stake here. You know, if we're cultivating uh, the next generation, something that makes more sense in the context of a household. You know, the household, the ranch is going to be there through generation and generation. And the role of the young people is to be brought up by their fathers in the ways that help them understand when they take on their next position in the family. Um, There's a lot at stake there. And so overuse of that authoritarian kind of perspective, just we should learn that in in the previous lesson, put off these things that are rooted in anger and abusiveness. Now, masters. I put masters before slaves, even though it's a switch in the order, because if you you start with slaves, it's hard to understand. Because you have to understand the nature of the master role because that flows directly into the, the role of the slave. If you start with slave, you're like, you start with trying to figure out, is this good or not? Like, is this something I can learn from? Or really should this slave just be not in this situation? And if you start with master, you can see, even in this passage, because this is like, Colossians 3 is the best passage on this in my mind, because it says, treat slaves with justice and fairness, which which if you're paying attention to what words can mean, that initially seems like a contradiction, right? Because in one sense, the things that come to our mind first about slavery aren't coming from 2,000 years ago. 
And in that scenario, there was no justice or fairness playing out. So how can these things go together? In the Ephesians passage, it says, Masters should give up the use of threats because you both have the same master in heaven. If you've read any of the epistles, you've probably come on this statement that all of the authors make, not just Paul, but Peter, James, John, and Jude. They all say, I, Paul, I, Peter, I, Jude, am a slave of Christ. And they use the same exact word that's used here um, because to them, that that word more closely to us, even though we don't naturally know what a bondservant is because we don't have those either, but bondservant means somebody who has sold themselves to another in in a situation of service. And to the Christ follower, they had to be going, this is exactly what we're doing here when it comes to Christ. Christ has come through his sacrifice, has paid for us. We have agreed that the price has been paid and acknowledged him as our master. If you've been watching like what we do in baptism and what we say, that's just what we're saying. And so they're naturally going to say, I am, I am the bondservant to Christ because that's what I am. I am his now. He's my master. He's paid for me, and it's awesome. If this term, the slave, you know, even if we can say, eh, we're, we're pretty darn sure we know that it doesn't mean one thing or the other, certainly they're never going to use a term that's kind of despicable in nature to describe themselves. This was a very positive thing. Because that's how they refer to themselves. Like, I, this, is, this is a role that I have in the kingdom now. And that's what it means here. You're, as the master, you're in charge with these individuals that you need to treat with justice and fairness because they're there living out their role. And your job is to lead them and train them and, and essentially represent Christ as he is our master. So that behavior from that master and that goal really sets the stage then for what the role of the slave is, which again, really bondservant here, but says, obey your master's bondservants, work at your job with enthusiasm to the Lord. These are valuable members of the household, otherwise they wouldn't be mentioned. I mean, these are significant individuals that the master is told to treat in a particular way and What's even more kind of fun to think about is, you know, if, if they're all sitting around the table, you, you could imagine like when this letter came out and they like, hey guys, let's get around the table here and uh, like read this letter that Paul sent about how we should be like treating each other. And we get around and it comes to the master and it's like, yeah, you need to treat these guys with fairness and justice. And then it, it gets to the slave and he's like, Okay, what I'm hearing is I don't really work for you, Master. I work for the Lord. I'm supposed to work as if I'm working for the Lord. Um, but you, I, you're my master on this earth, but I'm supposed to work, which is a command to all of us, right? We're all commanded to work as though we're working for the Lord with enthusiasm, doing the thing that we've been given to do. Um, because that, it says it right there, that's the thing that brings honor and inheritance. You fulfill your role that you've been given and that leads to honor and inheritance. And so you can see that really, in a way, this master-slave relationship is very useful from like an applicability standpoint to us. It informs us that we have been given a role, be enthusiastic about filling it. If, 
if you're talking about your job, which a lot of times when you teach through this, you go, yeah, you, this is kind of representative of your job. Um, still, you can kind of resist a little bit, like, I don't want to think about myself as like a slave to my boss at work. That just makes it seem worse. Um, but that's your flesh talking, right? <laughs> you're, you're working for the Lord, and we all represent Christ in his heart when we work hard at the tasks that we've been given and we've been committed to, and it's our duty to fulfill those. So now with all of those roles kind of put out there and talked through, let's, let's kind of close out here with just a couple of what does this mean for me? And the first one is about the mysteries, right? We, we started this with there's this mystery. Again, mystery not like intentionally withheld or obscured information. These are just things that cause us to think differently. There's this concept that uh, God may be, you know, the all-knowing ruler of the universe, our creator. There is no power that's not his, but he wants us to get us to know him through how we treat each other. And that, that needs to make us think about where we put our priorities, how much time we focus on thinking about how we treat others. Am I doing this the right way? Do I need to change? Do I spend time examining my heart with respect to what's, my, what's the position of my heart when I think of other people? It's, it's a... It's a little bit of a mystery because you you, got to work hard at it. But really, the stakes are high. Um, A lifetime of success and achievement doesn't overcome a lifetime of failing to love people. I mean, that's that's the command to love others, and that's how God would know us. Um, He says it right there, right? We've all heard the, by this they will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. That's said over and over the second mystery plays out as we're talking about particularly the role of, of wives as it relates to the husband. Um, and that mystery is, is that in, in the culture that we live in, it tends to be that value is directly connected to authority and achievement. They're kind of the same things, right? To the degree to which you're successful and have notoriety, then you are also that valuable. That's kind of how, you know, even at work, you know, I do pretty good at work, but it doesn't change the fact that every day at work, my value is still being proven and in question. I can become unvaluable. Not, not the same way in the kingdom, right? There is no becoming unvaluable to God. It is established and it is firm. It is unchanging. So that then when we're given a role, regardless of what it is, filling that with enthusiasm, like I said, is where the the honor is and where the inheritance comes from. We don't have to be concerned. It's the freedom that we get by being a member of um, or being a Christ follower where our value is secured. And that, that's a mystery um, because really whenever we hear words like submit and obey, there's still something in our flesh that makes it like well up and like, I want to, I want to push back against that. I just don't like it. And the trick to to managing that and making sure you keep the right perspective on that is, is in this mystery, right? Value is equally and freely given to all Christ's followers. There's no favoritism. There's no honor inherit. The honor and inheritance is bestowed on those who live out their given roles with enthusiasm. The next what does it have to do with me is the value of building a household. You know, we will commonly say you know, in, in church, church is a family of families. 
It wasn't, wasn't our quote. It came from a lesson series that we use called Build. Um, and it's not rocket science, right? It's saying the church is one big family, and it's built out of smaller families. Or the church is one big household built out of smaller households. And the teaching that you see Paul give to the household of the church at a fundamental level is just a scaled-up version of the same teaching he gives to the households like where you and I live. You know, there's Christ is the head. There's many parts. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The husband can't say to the wife, I don't need you. It's different imagery, but the same principle. We all have an equal part in that that is valuable and necessary. Christ is at the head. And then the implication is, is that for us to operate as a church that is healthy and effective is built on the foundation of these healthy households. Without those households, the thing starts to crack and not actually be very strong. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like humbling, right? I mean, it's up to us to run our households well because on that is built the church. If you like play with Legos, you know that like, because I play with Legos like crazy, it's like the engineer in me. The brand name Legos fit together super well. It's amazing how they fit together, right? If it's Lego brand name. But if, you know, your grandma or somebody wants to buy you a Lego and they get you the off-brand Legos, the ones that are like weird, sometimes they're like translucent blocks, they don't fit together quite the same. They were like reverse engineered to fit together, but they don't. And you can handle like one like bricks or blocks or whatever they are. Like, yeah, it's okay. But you start trying to build something that's like half built out of those, it just falls apart. It's a piece of junk. I don't know why that imagery comes to my head, but that's, that's how I picture the church, you know, as we start to lose healthy families, right? We've got these non-brand name Legos that we're trying to fit together, and it's like we've got to use them differently. And It's a high calling to, to run a household, and I think that's where it, it comes down to the like, what's the choice here? Evaluate your household. Does it, do you need to put effort into making this a functional, operational unit where we're living out these roles that has a high calling to be part of representing Christ. People will know who Christ is because of how you live your family. People will come to your house and go, oh, I can see things here. There's something here I can see. You know, when, when young people like you guys come to the church who have grown in those households, you go, oh, this kind of makes sense because I see kind of a similar thing at home. That's, there are uh, high callings there, and we have to, to see the value of living our family lives as households, not just the people who are stuck under the same roof. Um, it's not saying that you've got to have these members of your family. It doesn't matter who's living in that, ho- in that household with you. It could be a bunch of guys renting a house in Rita Ranch. It could be anything. Those people with you have a calling to be a household, a small building block for the church, and a representative of who Christ is. Let me pray for us, Lord. Thanks for strong teaching. Um, It's been painful being stuck at home more so than many of us have ever experienced. Um, But there's an opportunity there to strengthen our households. Let us not miss that opportunity to work on our, our family roles. Help us to inspire each other, to build on each other, um, to do our duty and be committed to the thing that you gave us to 
in, in one small way be a building block that supports your church and the mission that you gave us. Lord, we love you. Amen. Thanks, guys. There'll be some folks here to pray for you. Um, otherwise, have a good rest of your weekend. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Join us next week as we have another guest speaker, our very own Pastor Matt Miller, who will continue in the Great Mystery series. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.